Well, welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am Camden Bird, and I am currently employed at Eastern Illinois University, and I am joined by Ramya Swayamprakash, uh, who is at Grand Valley State University. Ramya, how are you doing today? Oh, it's been a spicy week, so I'm doing very well. Um, <laughs> the sun's out. I believe it's uh, summer, but it's cold as hell at night, so what do I know? But, yeah, um, yeah, that's that early summer, you know, it's like beautiful days, but then it's like still wear layers at night. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I'm doing well. There's no teaching to do for the most part. So do you I have think. any fun summer plans? Uh, yes, I have a conference, which according to my child is very uh, cool, which whatever. Um, but um, I have a conference on the West Coast in Portland that I am quite looking forward to because it's my first time. And um then we might be going to California. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Very nice. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I have big plans to rest, but I I have Excellent. Uh, a workshop and some writing to get done, as as I'm sure you do as well. Oh, so. yeah. That stuff. Yeah, that's that, that, that stuff. <laughs> well, um, this is... Uh, for listeners, our, our last episode for, our, for a short break, we will take a summer break, but this is a great episode to end on. Mm-hmm. We met and talked with Ashley Howard, who is an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Iowa, a proud Omahan. Her research interests include violence, social movements, and the black Midwest. And we really uh, wanted to talk to her about a recent essay article that she wrote in the Middle West Review that was in the spring uh, 2023 issue, which was titled, What to the Other is the Midwest? Um, Ramya, what should our listeners be pulling from this? What, what did you take out of this conversation? Um, you know, honestly, I think I the conversation st- is still swimming in my head because it was just so refreshing and mm-hmm. To me, what stood out about the conversation was just the the ways in which um, Ashley thinks and talks about what it means to be from the Midwest. Uh, over the last year, we've you know asked all of our um, guests what they think the Midwest looks like, feels like, um, and what I really appreciated about Ashley was her. Um, insistence on sort of reframing the Midwest, um, not in, not in a way of like including more people, but just opening our eyes in, in more effective ways. Mm. Right? It's not a question of inclusivity of like saying the Midwest is also this, right? But instead sort of recognizing that the Midwest has always been this, mm-hmm. um, so that people of color are not new to the Midwest. And the things that we haven't done is perhaps paid attention to those imaginations and those ideas, right? Um, and so none of this, I guess what I found really revolutionary about the conversation was that it was a, so authentic and so just, you know, just the, the kind of conversation that lifts you up. It was a very uplifting conversation. And after that conversation, I was like, wait, we're on to something here and this is really cool. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that I took from that conversation. I think it's just, it just feels like it's a part of my head. Like the things that just keep popping up and down. So I like it. Yeah. It's a, it's a great episode to sort of like kickstart the summer of writing. Um, because as you said, Ashley points out so many compelling ways to think of the Midwest, but also, um, 
you know, a lot of the conversation is sort of an, a dialogue about how, you know, scholars should conceive of the region when taking into account the fullness of the experience of all inhabitants mm-hmm. of the Midwest mm-hmm. and being honest about the history um, and structures that are inherent in Midwestern uh, region. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, it was a great episode. I look forward to seeing more of Ashley's uh, scholarship in mm-hmm. the future uh, and undoubtedly will be a future guest on the pod. She doesn't know that yet, but yeah, already, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't feel like telling her that yet. I was just like, we'll wait for <laughs> and then we just call you back. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was just an amazing conversation. I think it, and it frames, um, it's a great way to bookend uh, our season because this entire year we've been sort of also asking whether it was um, Dr. Fernandez Jones book on like what it means to belong mm-hmm. um, the questions of, you know, belongingness questions of, of who can belong, who cannot belong. These are very germane and I think consistent questions um, to how we think of regions and regional studies. Uh, so I think it's a particularly fulfilling high note to mm-hmm. end um, our season this year on. Absolutely. Um, well, Shall we get to it? Shall we make a pod? We should. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's do this. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us here on Heartland History. What a delight to get to spend some time with you both. You're excited. Really excited. Yeah, very excited. Um, We're excited to discuss your recent essay, which was published in the Midwest Review, titled What to the Other is the Midwest, which was one essay as part of a larger symposium on the recent book by Britt Halverson and Joshua Reno, titled Imagining the Heartland, White Supremacy in the American Midwest. In addition to what was a really artful review, uh, you offer some further contemplation on the field of Midwestern studies. Um, and, and we'll talk about that, but before we get too far into that discussion, perhaps you could provide for the listeners, like a brief overview of that Halverson and Reno book, and maybe a bit about what you hope to do um, with this essay review. Sure. And, you know, first of all, I, I think it's important to say that although I do have a critique of the book, it still does hugely important work uh, on documenting how the Midwest has been imagined and and understood. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to discount that at all. Um, but basically what they're looking at is how the creation and maintenance of Midwestern identity is one that is in service to white supremacy and settler colonialism. And so really looking at how whiteness undergirds not only the American imagination of the Midwest, but how the Midwest itself is constructed. Um, and so, you know, that's what they're doing. And they put forth some really compelling evidence, you know, things that I've written about um, that really helped me understand this place as well. Um, but what I felt was really being left out is that then the Midwest only becomes a place that has meaning and value to only white people, to nobody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I often think, it, you know, as scholars, it's important to tell the stories of influence. I was writing this and reading this book coming back from the Black Midwestern in, uh, Initiative Symposium in Detroit. So I was in this wonderful space um, where there are, you know, 
about 100 Black people gathered together who identify as Black Midwest or are working in the Black Midwest or are scholars of the Black Midwest talking and thinking about what the Midwest means to them. Mm -hmm. And never was it these narratives of, you know, the white gaze or being, you know, taken down by white supremacy. And while certainly that is an aspect of a life as a person of color um, in the Midwest, it's not the dominant framework. It is not how we understand, because, you know, I'm, I'm a Black Midwesterner as well. It's not how I understand this place that I call home, right? This is my home as well. Um, and so that's that's kind of how I came to write this essay um, and to really think about what does the Midwest mean to me when I'm not even considered in its imagining. Camden and I were actually um, messaging about this yesterday about, you know, this is something we ask our authors every, well, in the last year, we've been asking every episode about what it means to be in the Midwest. Um, and, you know, you argue that what the Midwest is more than what's been considered so far. Um, and so I was wondering if you could explore a little on the space of the Midwest, but also sort of the the spatial temporal boundaries of what makes the Midwest, the, the Midwest, or even if it's a Midwest, right? That's great. And, you know, in my dissertation, I kind of evoke this idea of um, Jacob Bielus versus Ohio, right? The the pornography ruling. I know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I often like to think about the Midwest. I can tell you what is and what isn't the Midwest, but that's a, a decidedly unscholarly take on this question. Um, <laughs> And I also have, you know, uh, a colleague in the Midwest History Association, Corey Halla, when he was advertising last year's uh, thing, he had a great Drake meme that he put up. And it's like not, you know, the, it's not what where is the Midwest? And then Drake's like shaking his head. Nah, but it's what, you know, like mm -hmm. what is the ethos? What is the Midwest? And so I think that's, you know, how I really get at it. You know, hashtag it's complicated. <laughs> um, and so, you know. I think the easiest place to start about thinking about the Midwest is kind of the U.S. census designation of the, the 12, you know, north central states right in the center of the country. Um, but that gets muddy, right? And it gets muddy for a reason. And that reason is that the Midwest has a certain every place quality to it, right? It serves mm -hmm. as this proxy of as the whole. And so because of that, its boundaries, both literal and ideological, need to be fluid and, and you know, porous in how people think about it because of its symbolic value, right? And, and because of that, the spatiality of the Midwest shifts. And so if you're asking me what the Midwest was, you know, in the 1803, right, with the Louisiana Purchase, versus 1940 versus today that that answer changes not only because of the temporal framework but also the practitioners the people mm -hmm. who are who are looking at it and so you know these folks that Halverson and Reno um are thinking about right who are imagining uh the Midwest is this white pastoral meritocracy right they have to do some funny geography Mm -hmm. um, these people who imagine a white Midwest, they have to do a funny geography to make their Midwest, right, as Sarah Palin calls the real America, mm -hmm. align with these places, right? 
So they have to carefully draw a little line around, you know, places like Detroit or Chicago. No, 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 that's not Midwest. They have to draw lines out of Native American reservations, right? That's not the one. They have to draw lines around places of rural poverty, right, in order to make the definition work. And, you know, for me, that is, I, I'm so glad you brought up, like, the spatiality of it, because regions are relational, right? So where are they in space to other people? And I think Brent Campney um, writes so eloquently about thinking about how the Midwest is often seeing itself in opposition to the South when it comes to racial violence, like, y'all are the evil mm -hmm. other, we're, we're the good guys, right? And so they can't understand um themselves without this kind of spatial relationality of it. And so, you know, for me, I feel that this is why it's so critical to put people of color's experience at the heart of the Midwest, right? Beyond just this reclamation effort, it is truly the spatial reference point in which some white Midwesterners understand themselves, right? And how they define this place. We are not like them however we imagine them to be. And so although the Midwest has always been a multiracial space, it's been whitewashed in service of its mm -hmm. own technology. Mm -hmm. um, and so like that, that for me is kind of what it gets at. And for me, when I'm defining the Midwest and particularly thinking about those temporal and spatial parameters, you know, I, I, I like to use this quote, um, by the black intellectual historian, uh, Brandon Bird. And so when he's thinking about knowledge production, he says, what we need to ask ourselves is who produces knowledge, who produces knowledge and whom is it for, mm -hmm. right? And so this knowing the Midwest, right? Who is making that knowing? Who is making that definition? And what purpose does it serve? Who does it include? How does it bring into the fold? And who does it push to the margins? And so. For me, it's that relation, not in space geographically, but in ideal, ideological, racial, mm -hmm. and other kind of identity spaces. That is the production of the Midwest, and that's the fluidity of it. You had this comment a minute ago about sort of like narratives of white supremacy in the Midwest, right? And you're thinking about that book review. Um, you write, you know, this dilemma that happens with, you know, again, I don't mean to sort of denigrate that book. It's doing important work, but like... By constantly, you know, you write constantly centering narratives of white supremacy and resistance to it in its way renders Midwesterners of color as people who are only ever responding to the region, not building it. You go on mm -hmm. to write, it is critical to reiterate that Midwesterners of color create their communities, outlooks and identities with multiple intersecting inputs beyond white supremacy. This is, of course, like not a perspective that ignores racism and white supremacy, but also acknowledges that the region is defined by a variety of factors, values, struggles, dreams, efforts, relationships, right? Like what you just said. And the problem is, of course, that this framework essentializes the black indigenous minority experiences in the Midwest as one defined exclusively by racism and can even normalize Midwestern or the Midwestern identity as white, right? Um, so I'm curious, I mean, like, what directions does the field need to move in to demonstrate a fuller picture of Midwest donors, but also like a fuller picture and a better understanding of what the Midwest can and historically meant? Yeah, I mean, and that's such a, a big project, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so there, 
there are many, many directions it can and should go. And, you know, for me, I kind of think of, you know, this speech that Vincent Harding did at the Institute of the Black World back in like 1971. And I, and I refer to it often, and he's talking about white, Negro, and Black history. And those terms are, you know, dated terms, and they're ones that are to signify an idea, not necessarily signify who is writing these histories. And so he defines white history as this kind of triumphant, you know, march through time. Like we were here and then we're here and aren't we great because of it? Because we've, you know, made this move. And he says Negro history is ins inserting black voices into that dominant narrative, right? So like mm -hmm. Buffalo soldiers would be a great example, right? Black soldiers coming in and, you know, Western expansion. And then he says that black history is really even challenging the very premise of the story, right? And so it's not just adding voices of color into it, but asking different questions, right? And so what does it mean that Buffalo soldiers, right? Black American soldiers are part of this settler colonial project, right? They are mm -hmm. pushing out indigenous people from their homelands, right? And so that challenges ideas of white other binaries, it makes it for a multiracial narrative. It complicates the ways in which citizenship and security and the American dream are practiced. Um, so I think that's, you know, part of it. And, you know, with Halverson and Reno's book, I think they also get at these questions in um, really useful ways through looking at cultural production, looking at film and politics. And so really bringing in all of these kind of elements um, that inform how we know, right, something. Um, I think those are kind of some directions, just, you know, at the very surface level, why I would like to see, um, how I'd like to see Midwestern study scholars go. For me personally, as, you know, a historian of African America, um, I like to think about different sources, right? And so we know the problems of the archive. And so when we flip the sources and we accumulate more and don't try to kind of insert black voices into dominant narratives how do we begin to actually see these places different so i think about autobiography if we think of um cameron i can't recall his last name right now james cameron um who was nearly lynched in um indiana in marion and we think of tanisha ford talking about style and her you know memoir dressed in dreams and we think about margot jefferson's um kind of growing up in negro land she calls it right these are three very distinct versions of a black midwest experience mm -hmm one that centers anti-Black violence, one that centers Black girlhood, and one that centers like the Black upper class, right? And so even by just asking questions of different sources, we are beginning to get at a more heterogeneous way of thinking, not about just the Black experience, but the Black Midwest um, experience. And so I think my training as a Black Studies scholar has been really helpful because it has encouraged me to see the Midwest, you know, through an interdisciplinary lens, through an intersectional lens, through a diasporic lens, and through a multiracial um, lens. And I think that is kind of really where I would encourage, um, you know, scholars to go. 
And I also, again, think about to, you know, this kind of, you know, black intellectual history tradition, right? And part of the, the call of black intellectual historians have been to define and defend um, the black experience, right? And so I think scholars of the black Midwest have something really important to do in defining and defending that black Midwest experience, because not only do they have to, you know, make it visible in its many, you know, multivalent complicated ways, but they also have to prove their, you know, they have to understand that not only they have to demonstrate and define to white Midwesterners that black Midwesterners are here mm -hmm. and also define and defend to their racial counterparts that black people in this space can have an affinity for the heartland, right? So it's walking in between that kind of interstitial space that white Midwesterners don't see you as Midwest and black Midwesterners or, you know, black Americans can't believe you're you're repping the Midwest and making that kind of way of thinking about that ways because when folks talk about black people in this region, they're often deregionalized. And so like nobody thinks about Motown as a black Midwestern music because mm -hmm. it's just black music. Mm -hmm. Right. But you don't get Motown unless you got Detroit, a black Detroit, which you know, which is a Midwestern space. So yeah, like this idea of who and what the Midwest is conceived for, right? Um, I think came out, I mean, it's something we've been talking about on the podcast for a while, but um, but especially came out in reading your work and, you know, what you just said now about sort of de-regionalizing, in some senses denaturalizing the experience of people of color to make it something that, you know, making it about Motown and not so much a black, not so much about sort of a black Midwestern uh, experience is a great way to sort of make people always look like they're the other, right? And and that they don't belong here, right? Um, and so one of the sort of questions we, I mean, I, we both had, uh, was sort of um, if the whitewashing of the Midwest that you talked about in the beginning, um, if it's a consequence of the ways in which it was conceived of as a territory, you know, in terms of um, how it was first a territory and then slowly admitted in, in on a piecemeal basis um, into the union, right? So like just if that makes it, I guess, the perfect way to whitewash something, I don't know. Um, but just, you know, something that struck me a lot when I was reading your work. Yeah, and you know, for me, and perhaps this is my own kind of focus, what's undergirding the Midwest is the violence, right? And and the violence and, at, and exclusion is at the center of it. And so even in its kind of piecemeal thing, and this is what I find so fascinating about the Midwest as a region, when you take it as a regional study and not just happen to study a place within that region, is that this becomes an ongoing pattern in that region. Um, so I think about like starting with Ohio and the Northwest, mm -hmm. right? So not only do we have, you know, Native American push out and, you know, murder, we also have some of the first black codes in the nation, right? So exclusive exclusionary laws preventing black people from settling in Ohio, right? So like this, this construction of the Midwest is often one that is imagined, again, 
to be accidental. It just so happens to be a place where people of color did not settle, fully ignoring the mechanisms that kept people out of color or forcibly removed people of color that were here. And, you know, so, but then if we move, right, to Wisconsin and to Minnesota, right, who are, you know, in this kind of 1803, you know, Louisiana Purchase, ladder things, we see these same things happen, right? And and I'm particularly influenced um, by the work of William Green, who works um, about the Black experience in the Midwest, or excuse me, in Minnesota, which obviously is in the Midwest. Um, but he talks about how Black men were allowed the franchise when it was a territory because they mm-hmm. needed the numbers to order and to put a state charter. And then the minute they're admitted into statehood, they start rolling back mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. those political rights for Black men. And so like that for me is the tension of people of color in the Midwest, right? We want you here when it benefits us. And right, even... Mm-hmm. So we, I'm normatizing white people, right? And so thinking about Iowa, many of the, in the present day, many of the counties in Iowa have declining populations, but it is only those populations are staying where they are, are growing because of the largest growing population in Iowa are Latinos, right? And so this thing that it's that tension and knowing that certain people are going to work certain jobs and that that labor is needed, but the the discomfort and discordance by needing those people to make the economy work, to make, to pull the crops, to get statehood mm-hmm. is always this, this tension of violence, right? Of either exclusion or inclusion when it benefits those who are in power. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, that's that's what we see at, as this kind of constant in the Midwest alongside the denial of that practice, right? And so in my book, this is what I write a lot about, this Midwestern myth, this mm-hmm. idea that this region is built on bootstraps, right? People pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, you can achieve the American dream, right? Anything you want can happen here. And if you can't achieve it, that's on you, right? Mm-hmm. Fail. And that ignores racial redlining. And that ignores the fact that there are two categories of wages for people who are documented versus people who are undocumented. That is ignoring, you know, the systematic uh, stealing of land and, you know, bad faith contracts between sovereign nations, right? All of those things affect people's ability to so-called live the American dream and mm-hmm. pull themselves up by the bootstrap. And so it creates this loop that we're not at fault because this is the greatest place. And if you can't make it here, that's on you. And so that ideology and this, again, this kind of frontier mentality and making yourself new, yes, perhaps in the 1800s, if you were a poor white person from the coast, you could come here and reinvent yourself. But if you're a person of color, if you are a woman, if you are a queer person, if you are a religious minority, you can't shirk off those mm-hmm. identities and roll into the normative classes and start a new life because that mm-hmm. sort of baggage follows you into the Midwest mm-hmm. um, and disrupts the dream of, you know, 
this place as a white sanctuary. And, you know, I think it's also really important to think about the ways that immigrants have experienced the Midwest as well, right? Because they're coming into this place with these same, you know, kind of dreams of providing for their families and having security. And I've been doing a lot of research um, on the 1909 anti-Greek riot that took place in Omaha, right? And so today in, you know, 2023, we read Greeks as white Americans, but to, you know, turn of the century Omahans, they weren't. And so they're building stores, they're building schools, they're going to churches, right? But it's the wrong kind of school. It's mm -hmm. the wrong kind of church. It's, you know, and all of these things, because when we think of the Midwest, when we think of America, we want to think of white Christian, you know, men, right? And a certain type of things. And so often we see these points of, of friction when immigrants feel like they're doing the right thing, right? They fear that they're leaning in, but I keep having that kind of door blocked and, and pushed out of the way. And I mean, and this is such a story, right? Like I, I think about that German immigrants were forced to speak English, mm -hmm. right? In their schools, right? Because, well, that's not American. Well, what is American? How do we understand American? Again, who gets to determine that knowledge and for what purposes, right? And what happens when you you don't fit into those things? And again, this is why this, this false idea of what the Midwest is, is so dangerous. Mm -hmm, it's hearkening mm -hmm. back to a museum piece, mm -hmm. right? Like, a reality that never existed, right? Mm -hmm. The Midwest has never been all white or all Christian. For goodness sake, the nation of Islam is a Midwestern religion, right? Mm -hmm. And so we keep trying to get back to a time that has never existed. And mm -hmm. that is for me, this mythology, right? It is a story that is being told to justify why things have to be the way they are full knowing that the reason that things are the way they are is because they have been created that way. Do you think this is something that like the Midwest is uniquely burdened with that the Midwest is often seen in a modern day sort of sense as like the most American space in some way that, so like th there's this project of reinforcing this myth of the past to hold up, some sort of project in the present, right? And you see this sort of dialogue with like thinking of romanticizing the heartland and like we're worried about what's going on there, you know, et cetera, et cetera, sort of modern political rhetoric. But I'm curious if doing that, then it's sort of like you're both holding up a myth, but then constantly reinventing it. I think that is exactly the point. I think particularly this idea of a heartland yeah. is... yeah important one, right? Because we can actually document when it comes into play, right? You're first seeing it used in Central Asia, excuse me, Central Europe, 1903, 1904, somewhere there. And it's part of a nationalist project, right? People want to imagine who we are as a nation state, as an imagined mm -hmm. community, right? This is language that we keep evoking. Um, and then in the United States, this heartland, right, of this good place, is coming up out and becoming more popular in the post-war era. And mm -hmm. if you think about it, it is because there are rights revolutions happening, right? 
There is an influx of immigrants coming in in the 1960s. You have, you know, the American Indian movement, you have the Chicano movement, you have civil rights, you have black power, you have gay rights movement, you have a women's rights movement, right? People are freaking out. And when I mean people, I mean white Christian men are mm -hmm, freaking mm -hmm, mm -hmm. out that the privilege that, that they have had is going to go away. And so this, again, is in the conception, the the reimagining and reinvesting in this idea of the Midwest has literal capital to it, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is where you can buy a house. This is where men go and work and ladies stay at home with the children to to raise new good Midwesterners. And people who are out there protesting in the streets, they don't love this country. Women who want, you know, to earn equal pay outside of the house, they don't love this country, right? Because they are shaking what is understood to be the very foundations of what the United States is built on. And, you know, again, this is when you begin to see in film and in stories, a lot of these ideas of this nostalgia mm -hmm. of the Midwest and of a, of a place Mm -hmm. that was and and it's doing a certain kind of work um adam ochonicki has a really good um book looking at this kind of nostalgic retro violent retribution in midwestern film as this act of reclamation um and it's you know the just again this way that um that we're constantly reimagining and constantly reinvesting in what the Midwest is in order to serve this, mm -hmm. this natural, national mm -hmm. um, desire for a time that never was, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, that's, this is something that like drives me crazy continuously, which is like it, that the Midwest has to mean something. You're, like why what why is that like a value system we have to impart onto a, a region that is incredibly diverse in so many ways like that it has like this core set of meanings yeah and this is something that i've been grappling with as well and and i think ultimately the midwest is the nation writ small right so the the values that want to be imprinted upon the Midwest are actually values that America wants to have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of really kind of early um, theorists of the Midwest, right, it said that part of the core identity of the Midwest is the denial of difference in this space, right? That it's a homogenous space, that there's no difference, we're just all the same, we're regular, boring, mundane folks. And so if that is your, you know, if that's the the easel that you're 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 hanging your painting on, you can paint anything on it, right? Like we just hold the values that you want to imprint on it. There's mm -hmm, nothing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's nothing unique or special or, or distinctive about this region except that we're not this place and we're not that place. And and again, that is why I think it's helpful to bring in these other voices mm -hmm. into what these experiences mm -hmm. are. Um, because I think there are some really key ways in which thinking about the experiences of people of color in this place help us to have a better intra-regional understanding, yeah. right? Like, because 
if we're thinking that whiteness is normative, right? You will feel at home in any white place in the Midwest, right? It's all the same, it's homogenous or so, you know, this idea goes. But if we look at black people, right? Even in the 1920s, they are moving within the region. And so they see the same and difference in place. So like, even like Malcolm X, right? His family is coming to Omaha. They leave, spend a little time in Milwaukee. They go to Lansing, right? So, but racial violence dogs him in all these places. The painter mm -hmm. Aaron Douglas is spending time in Kansas City and Lincoln, Nebraska, and Minneapolis and Chicago. Same thing with the photographer Gordon Parks, right? So they're living these intra-regional lives that are actually making them more, you know, specifically citizens of the region than not. Mm -hmm. And if we think about networks, again, if we think of, you know, farmers, like, you know, um, seasonal farmers who follow the, the various crops, they are traveling and they're working, you know, the beet uh, industry, they're working corn, they're doing soybeans. And so they are seeing the Midwest um, in a way that folks who are multi-generational in the same place for years and years aren't seeing it. And they also have to build different networks of support. They have to find different community aspects. And so that also kind of shifts on its head, but also reifies these normative values of the Midwest of community and self-help and, you know, um, communalism, but in a way that because it's done by people of color is thought of as not Midwestern and not uh, a part of the dominant value system. Yeah. I don't know. I, this is something that I seem to see and maybe you see it as well. And we can talk about that, but like, there's like this tension a little bit in Midwestern studies or maybe in just the, some of the stuff I've been reading who like see the region as like this unique cultural space, a space with like these defining values uh, that are different than other regions, right? They, you know, they they often describe these values. You know, you've talked about as like hardworking, humble, nice, Christian, moral, rural, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Um, these are the buzzwords that we often hear. As you might tell by my tone, I think this is wrong. Um, <laughs> I think this really leads to bad ideas and honestly bad scholarship. Uh, for example, like if the Midwest means Christian or Christianish. Uh, then is a Muslim not a Midwesterner, right? Is there a region in the U.S. whose residents don't consider themselves hardworking? Uh, if the Midwest means rural, what room is there for urban history and regional studies? Are Chicago, Detroit, Minneapolis, Toledo, St. Louis, are these somehow lesser Midwestern? Um, as I get down from my soapbox, though, I, I, I would love to this be a great conversation where we could talk about, like, what does it mean to sort of ask more productive questions, which I think is what we've been having here, mm -hmm. right? If we change the way and the questions and the way we conceive of the Midwest going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would completely change the field, right? And again, not just the, the, the changing of the literal complexion of, you know, the stories mm -hmm. that are told, but even the stories that are being told, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I alluded a little bit earlier that Black authors are deregionalized, right? So, like, Toni Morrison. Is she right, black? right. Like, no, she's just a Black author. And so, like, Hanif, um, 
Abdul Rakim, right? Uh, who's just a brilliant black Midwest author, lives in Columbus, like reps hard. Um, he says that like by re-regionalizing black Midwest authors, we actually have to reckon with the multitude of blackness, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so like we have to reconsider what it means to be black. And so not just Detroit and Chicago, but also Lorain, Ohio. Also, you know, DeWitty, Nebraska. Also, you know, like a random black kid in a random South Dakota town, right? That isn't part of a community, but is a black Midwesterner living in mm -hmm. a very, very different space. So like, mm -hmm. it's that reorientation of what even blackness means and also the reverse of that. Why can't Black Midwesterners speak into these Midwestern studies, study spaces as authentic voices mm -hmm. of the Midwest, right? Does Richard Wright have something no less valuable to offer the Midwestern experience and understanding and framing the Midwest as Willa Cather does, right? Like if we think about both of these books, right, are about existential crises, right? Existential crises. Who are we? Where are we going? But with Richard Wright, it's a Black story. And with, you know, Cather, it's a story of making it on the mm -hmm. prairie. Mm -hmm. And so, like, these people are speaking in the same spaces, just like Prince and the band Kansas, right? Like, why isn't Prince the, you know, mm -hmm. quintessential mm -hmm. voice music of the Midwest, right? Like, he is literally the product of the Midwest, be it the Great Migration, being it, you know, the Black community, because they have good jobs, can have social experiences to busting. And so he's hearing, you know, rock music. Plus, he is benefiting from the post, you know, civil rights era music programs in schools, right? Like, that is a Midwestern story. And that tells a complicated story that mm -hmm. I think folks who are invested in this hardworking, this, you know, bootstrapper identity find it more difficult to, to grapple with. Because in order to understand Prince and in order to understand that his is a Midwestern story, we have to tell some uglier histories about mm -hmm. them, right? Why is busing needed in the first place, right? Like, and so I think that is what we get at. And then, you know, much like I evoked with Vincent Harding earlier, we ask whole new questions. And that gets away from this essentialism of the Midwest, which is one that is told as a way to bolster our own mythology and our own awesome to really uncover um, the ways in which the political economy, the spatial geographic economy, um, the racial fluctuations have changed what this place looks like, right? Just like if we think about the South, slavery looms large in their history. They can never escape it. Same thing on the coast, right? Immigration of people of color to these places means that their narratives cannot be an afterthought. It is a constitutive part of these histories, right? Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. cannot understand California if we don't understand that it was owned by Mexico beforehand, right? None of the city names make sense if we don't acknowledge people of color's presence. And I think that is really what I'm asking, you know, people to do is to spend time 
with the spaces and the thinkers of the people who are coming from this region who are others, right? Be it religious others, racial others, um, gendered others, and seeing how their stories actually make for a more expansive, mm-hmm. authentic telling of what the Midwest is. Agreed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I, I mean, yes. I mean, this is Rami and I are just like texting about this all the time. Being othered in this space is actually the more compelling tension that is what mm-hmm. defines the region to begin with, you know, like sort of at like a sort of logistical level or sort of like a spatial level or level as you talk about like Malcolm X family, like Omaha, Milwaukee, um, Lansing. I mean, like those are all Midwestern places, but that clearly is talking about some sort of network that is real, that is Midwestern, that is a region. But also like those experiences there are also Midwestern that lead to a position, an outlook, a politics, like all of that to me is the complex tension that is Midwestern regionality that needs to be uncovered more. No, I was just going to say that like for me, the, the you know, somebody who study, studies borderlands, the other thing is how the Midwest as it's conceived, it's so inward looking as opposed to like when you cross the border, it's so different. Like, I was lamenting to my sister yesterday about how, like, when I even go to a place like Windsor, it is so diverse as compared to where I live right now. Like, when I go to Detroit, I feel like I can breathe because, you know, I'm surrounded by people of color. And I'm like, phew, I don't need to, like, hold my breath like I have been for the last nine months, right? Um, And so it's also interesting to me how the Midwest is so inward looking because the minute you cross that half a mile long tunnel and you go into Windsor, um, it's diverse, right? And I don't feel like I stand out. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm just one of those many idiots bumbling about in my life. Like it doesn't matter, right? Which is great, right? <laughs> to, to to in in a sense be like not seen because you're just another idiot is not a bad thing, right? Yes. Sometimes when you've been othered so much, it's actually like great. I'm accepted for just being an idiot, which is great because I've never felt like that. Right, right, right. You're just just someone walking down the street, not the someone walking down the street. And again, by flipping how we think of the Midwest, we can ask different questions. You know, in the run up to Trump's second presidential run, right, there's all of this discussion about how will white working, mid, you know, Midwesterners vote? Will they push through the vote? instead of thinking the opposite way, right? Which the election results in places like Wisconsin, Michigan were actually determined by black working class mm-hmm. Midwestern mm-hmm. folks. And, and this idea somehow that black people we know are oftentimes the first fired and the last hired, they're economically disadvantaged. You know, there's lots of reports documenting this, but they're never imagined as the disaffected Midwesterner, right? They're the, never the ones who are down and out on their life. You know, the poor working class, you know, Joe Plumbers who need this new type of energy in the White House. That's never part of that discussion, which again, essentializes who is thought to be in this region and who has a legitimate claim for grievance. Right. And, you know, for me in particular, as an African-American historian, it's so telling that this kind of Midwestern bounty of, you know, the industrial, you know, powerhouse, right, the the maker of breakfast of the world's breakfast. Right. You got your bacon, you got your eggs, you got your grains, all of that kind of stuff. 
Black migrants during the second wave of the Great Migration only reap those benefits for a generation, right? Because by the time we're getting into the 60s, we see deindustrialization and mechanization happening in these urban places first, um, and Black people in the urban Midwest first, and Black people are the canaries in the coal mine, right? They are having higher rates of unemployment, working the same kind of jobs um, as early as, you know, 1965, 1966 in meatpacking um, in Omaha. But we see again a difference that labor industry changes in Omaha to be a um, white collar insurance telemarketing. There are training programs to help white meat packers transition into these jobs. Um, and yet the narrative is that are often excluding uh, people of color. The narrative is, well, see, they made good on it. They just transitioned, they pivoted, they found new jobs. And y'all over here, right? Black and brown people, you just weren't willing to work for it. Again, ignoring mm. how some people's opportunities were closed off. And, and I think, again, this framing of who is a hard worker, who mm -hmm. is you know willing to pull themselves up is not only regionalized, is also racialized. Mm -hmm. Once again, demonstrating what Halverson and Reno are arguing that race and region are synonymous and constantly intertwined. Yeah. And the other three major regions in the United States have had to be more upfront. This is, you know, a Howard argument that they have had to be more upfront about the the legacy of racialism mm -hmm. race mm -hmm. in their lives in the Midwest has. And until we're ready to look that history straight in the eye, we're going to keep making right. up stories about ourselves. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that's why your work is so per important. And um, mm -hmm. as you said, like the most the more productive question is to historicize the myth as opposed to simply repeat it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which now gets us to asking you, um, <laughs> what are you currently working on? What else can we expect? I'm working on all the things, it seems like, <laughs> right now. Uh, so my my first book um, on the urban uprisings in uh, the Midwest is currently under review. So hopefully that will be out in the world very, 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 very soon. Because um, it's, it's a book that I've spent uh, a long time with that's very near to my heart. And... And frankly, you know, since Ferguson and obviously with Minneapolis has really challenged me to think more deeply and more critically because stakes are so much higher about the relationship between region and violent protests. So uh, that that is almost out the door, um, but I'm working on a second project um, tentatively titled More Than a Snapshot. Um, which is looking at the lynching of Will Brown in Omaha, Nebraska in 1919. And apropos of this conversation, right, most people know him from his terribly gruesome and, and very graphic um, photograph of his murder. Um, and so what this book is actually doing is saying, what happens when we move beyond this moment of death to consider his full life? And what is the violence of history, right? What is... Yeah. What are these myths that we perpetuate um, that allows certain people to be let off the hook historically and other people not to? Um, and then I am so delighted because my uh, co-PI, Colin Gordon, and I 
won a Mellon Foundation grant to study racial redlining um, in Iowa's six metro uh, counties, which is super duper uh, important and exciting. Uh, so that is the final big project. And, you know, a lot of the work that I did with um, the other Midwest and a forthcoming piece in an edited volume by John Locke um, rely a lot on what, you know, I the critique I made um, in, in Halverson and Reno's book um, and really forcing me to put my money where my mouth is <laughs> and, and about uh, the Black Midwest cultural experience outside of the white gaze. Um, so in kind of my so-called free time, <laughs> it is a myth in, in and of itself but yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly if we want to talk myths that is that is one um I've, I've been doing a lot of reading and really a deep dive into black cultural and vernacular um experiences in the midwest so thinking about you know funk music and food ways and styles um which frankly is a real delight as a scholar of racial violence to like look at pictures of people's clothes and to read their cookbooks and, and and think about these moments of, dare I say, banality, right? So not, you know, these moments of triumph of, you know, Linda Brown winning her Supreme Court case, which again, Brown versus Board of Education took place in Topeka, a Midwest story, right? Or these moments of racial violence, but just like how black people are living their lives every day right just uh -huh. the games their children are playing the pta me meetings they're attending the cultural fests that they're playing you know that they're planning the churches that they're worshiping in just giving getting a sense of the quiet moments of of black life um because i think by shifting my own focus there we again step back from the white gaze and put mm -hmm. greater focus and ask smarter questions of what actually mattered in the lives of black Midwesterners. Mm -hmm. And it's summer and our professors, so I'm also gonna like kick it. <laughs> 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 no fiction and like hang out at the pool and live full lives as well, right? Because mm -hmm. in my authentic black Midwestern experience, I want to live a full banal life as well. Yes. I like it. that. I like banal life. That would be nice. <laughs> that would be nice. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. Uh, yes. Really great. Thank you. This, is, this has um, given me a lot of uh, food for thought. And I think it's what I needed because I've been thinking a lot about the banal life and what it might mean to live a banal life and the privilege of a banal life but um but it, through this conversation i'm also thinking about the the survival uh instinct in a banal life like how do we how do we just live banal lives like just despite everything right um yeah something to think about maybe i shall live a banal life starting next week we'll see <laughs> i love it i believe in you um, thank you I, I can send you recipes, you know, <laughs> book recommendations, all the boring stuff I do. Um, and and thank you uh, for having me on the show. I, I love the Midwest. It's such an honor and a privilege to speak with people who are asking great questions and thinking about the region in complicated and frankly, I think life-changing ways. So thank you so much for having me here. All right. Well, off to a banal rest of the day. Yes. <laughs>